My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. I would really like it if today's episode ended with a glimmer of hope. But I want to make sure that it's real hope, not the breathlessly reported false hope about just how close we are to a vaccine, a working vaccine for COVID-19. Because look, it's my job, so I read and I watch and I listen to a lot of things about this virus and a lot about a potential vaccine. And it seems like there's a lot of false hope going on out there. In the global race to find a vaccine, Oxford University just jumped way ahead of the pack. Human testing is already underway, and scientists say they're hopeful it will be available by September. Meanwhile, though, in the scientific community, there is a lot of real work being done, work that's never been done before. And it's going to be the layperson's challenge over the next few months or more to sort the real work from the false hope when you're on social media or consuming media of any kind. And since regular listeners to this show know that I am nothing if not a layperson with annoying questions for smart people, I thought I could start trying to do that starting today. So, COVID vaccines going into phase three trials. You may have heard seemingly a new one every week or so. Some are even going into production despite just starting phase three. That sounds promising, right? That's good. It means they work, I think. We're mass producing the most promising candidates in advance so that we're ready immediately upon approval. We have our military lined up. It's logistics. It's all about logistics. You see, these are the kind of basic questions that we're going to start with. And we'll try to end with a timeline, a deeper understanding, and some real, tangible, factual hope. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Ivan Semenik is a science reporter at The Globe and Mail. He's going to help walk us through the current vaccine landscape. Hi, Ivan. Hi. My first question, I guess, it's been uh, several weeks since we last talked about a potential COVID-19 vaccine on this show. And since then, I've seen a handful of trials go to the next phase, um, reports about some going into production, some people making their own vaccines. So, you know, can you kind of paint us a picture of of what the current landscape is and, and who's working on what and, and, and what's going on? Absolutely. Things are, I don't think it's too much of a cliche to say things are racing forward, breakneck speed, however you want to describe it. it it's uh, going orders of magnitude faster than would be typical for, you know, the, the development of a, of a routine vaccine. And that's happening, you know, when you ask who's working on them, it's kind of who's not working on a COVID vaccine at this point. Right. To, you know, to the point where, you know, I, I've sometimes got questions from readers you know, if, for example, they see where perhaps the federal government has funded a project in uh, Canada that might lead to a vaccine and the, re you know, readers would naturally ask, well, 
aren't there already phase three clinical trials happening elsewhere in the world? Why would we want to start a vaccine project at this stage? And the answer is because it's it's not just a race to get to the finish line first. No one actually knows of the vaccines that may succeed and get approved first, which of them will turn out to the, be the most effective or the safest or the best for different populations. So really, work has to continue in several different directions. So for most of these companies and research groups, it's still in their interest. At at some point, people will start throwing in the towel and saying there are enough options on the table now that there's no point in us going forward. But for now, it's almost worth anyone uh, that, that has some technology or some expertise to pursue a vaccine because it's still not clear which ones are going to end up being the most important ones. I'm just going to try to lay the groundwork for uh, our discussion that follows. When we talk about uh, a vaccine moving to phase three, what does that mean? Yes. So by now, people may have started to get the lingo down, you know, that clinical trials, this is trials involving human patients, human subjects happen in three phases, one, two, and three. And there are kind of sub phases or there, there are ways of mixing some of those phases. But the basic architecture of these kinds of studies is phase one, phase two, phase three. Before all of that, there's a development period where, you know, the vaccine is being worked on and tested in the lab. There could be animal studies, other kinds of things. That's all before phase one. That's called preclinical. And eventually you get to the point where you have enough data from animals, enough data from other means uh, to think, okay, we've got something here that's worth trying in humans. Phase one is a small study that may just involve a handful of people, maybe dozens of people. And the uh, the main objective with phase one is simply to see, is this safe? We think it's fine. We've got lots of good evidence, but let's just double check and make sure this is safe and try mm-hmm. it with a small number of volunteers to see if they're okay. Once that seems to work, then you can move on to phase two, where you're still looking for safety. In fact, for all of these phases, you're monitoring safety because there are some side effects or some safety concerns that may not really become apparent until you're testing thousands of people. But in phase two, you know, it varies, but ideally, you know, ideally you'd want to be looking at hundreds of people and uh, and testing not only for safety, but some sense of, uh, is the vaccine actually working? Are people getting an immune response? With vaccines, it's a little different than, uh, you know, testing a medicine against someone who may be sick, because if they're sick and the medicine works, you know, they're getting better. With a vaccine, you're giving them a vaccine and then you're kind of waiting around to see if they get sick or not, right. they may not get sick if they're not exposed to the virus, but they may also not get sick if the vaccine protected them. The only way you know is to, uh, is to wait long enough and kind of statistically figure out, you know, what, was the, what were the chances of this person getting COVID-19 or this group getting COVID-19? Are they doing better than the odds? And maybe that the vaccine is helping them. Okay, wait. So just, this is a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So in these situations, they wouldn't then purposefully expose uh, the participants to the virus. Correct. That What you're describing huh. there is something called a human challenge trial. And that is not being done anywhere with COVID-19 for a couple of reasons. First, you know, if someone gets really sick with COVID-19, there is no guarantee that they won't die. Right. There isn't a, there isn't a kind of a, 
a gold standard treatment that we know will save someone's life. Now, there have been challenge trials. In fact, with the common cold, which some of which is caused by coronaviruses, uh, you know, people have done challenge trials with the cold because, you know, someone gets a cold, they'll get over it. But mm-hmm. we can study, uh, you know, the possible vaccines and so on or, or other aspects of immunity by deliberately giving them the virus. Not being done with COVID-19 because we don't know how to you know, treat it if it gets bad for someone and also can't even predict who may or may not get very sick. That's still a big question mark. But also the kinds of people that, you know, you might want to volunteer for a challenge trial would be people who are very healthy, strong immune systems, probably young people. You know, you could sort of imagine the altruistic person who would want to volunteer for such a trial. And there are people who've signed up for this or who are looking to, to do this. Totally. But really, the population we care about are, you know, where we're seeing the most deaths with COVID-19, elderly, immune compromised, people who are weakened in other ways. You're definitely not going to do a challenge trial with that group. And so if you do a challenge trial with a healthy group of people, what is that really telling you? You've taken a group of healthy people, put their lives at risk potentially, and in the end, the data may not say anything about this older group or this other more vulnerable group that you really need to protect with a vaccine. So that's those are among the reasons why people have backed off from that. There are other ethical reasons uh, too. And just to get back to where we were at, so with the phase right. two and phase three. So then phase three is you know, what everyone wants. And that's that's when you're going to now deploy the vaccine to a large enough number of people. Ideally, thousands or tens of thousands of people will receive the vaccine and they'll be followed for months and months. And over time, you know, there'll be some genuine sense of whether this large group of people is turning out to be better protected, less sick, less likely to get the virus than another group of people that received the placebo. So, you know, with these big trials, some of the people who are getting the vaccine are not actually getting the vaccine. They're getting a placebo. And then you're comparing these two groups side by side. The gold standard kind of uh, uh, study would be randomized, double-blinded. No one knows who's getting the real vaccine. No one knows who's getting the placebo. And at the end, you look at the numbers, crunch the numbers and see who came out. And, And if the group that got the real vaccine came out better, better protected, less sick, maybe less severe or less likely to be infected, then you know you've got a working vaccine. So how many vaccines do we currently have uh, at that state? The big picture is over 140 are being worked on. uh, And then you sort of got maybe less than 40 uh, now moving through human trials. Of those, six are now at that, depending on how you count them, six are at that uh, uh, phase three. Wow. Uh, you know, sort of the last couple of months, we've seen some entering into that phase three stage, including, for example, the Moderna vaccine, which a lot of people have heard about the last couple of weeks, this RNA vaccine developed in the U.S. Uh, can't sign, uh, sorry, Sinovac, a Chinese company, has an attenuated version of the virus that they're, that they're doing in a phase three trial, University of Oxford, uh, and there are some others as well. So dif- different strategies are de- being deployed. A couple of these trials are in the U.S. Uh, the Oxford one is in the U.K., Sinovac in Brazil, because one of the problems is to really have a phase three trial, you also need to have the virus around. If there's not enough virus around, of course, yeah, it takes a long time to find out if uh, people are getting sick or not. So, yeah, so the fi- the Sinovac trials in, in Brazil and there's another uh, a Chinese trial that's being run in, in the United Arab Emirates. So, so you could see that these vaccine makers are kind of chasing the uh, 
where where is the infection raging right now and trying to to get people to sign up in those places so you mentioned um that it's been kind of a, a flat out race uh, at the beginning and now we've got six of these moving on to phase 3 so presumably it's uh it's an even more competitive race so maybe with fewer subjects but what are the risks um, when you have so many potential vaccines uh, moving so quickly through these trials? Because it does seem like something we've never seen before. Well, I think the big risk is if there is an early indication that a vaccine is working, that there would be pressure to let's just start distributing it to people. Uh, it looks good. Uh, maybe all the data aren't in yet, but let's just start giving it to people because it's better than nothing, you know, and that's, and that's a slippery slope because of course there could be downsides, uh, you know, there could be safety issues that arise later, but I think even... That's an argument I've seen out there. Yeah, absolutely. Safety would sort of be the first uh, number one thing because if a vaccine is distributed widely and it turns out not to be safe, that's going to be disastrous. That's going to be worse than not having a vaccine because now you're going to have people, th th there's going to be broken trust, basically. Um, and then, then there's also the investment, right? Like if the, it, maybe the vaccine will be mm -hmm. safe, but if it turns out that um, distribution was too hasty or too premature, and then as time goes on, actually this vaccine isn't very effective. You know, you've sunk a lot of resources into making and distributing that vaccine, and then we have to do it all over again because really it's kind of a dud. So, you know, the ideal scenario is that the vaccines that make it through phase three, that at least some of them will be the home run. Like, it, like there's just no doubt the data looks awesome. They really are clearly effective. But then there could be this uh, other scenario where it's much more ambivalent and so not, not quite clear how well it's working. Maybe it gets prioritized for some people if in the absence of another vaccine, but maybe it just takes longer to get something better on the table. So this is, again, why things are kind of moving in multiple directions, just in case. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. How long would a typical phase three study take? I think you mentioned months and, and nothing I read uh, says anybody has any appetite for for not shortening the process. Absolutely. Well, you you know, again, and this is where it's interesting with COVID-19 because it's a little bit different than uh, what we're used to seeing with other forms of vaccine development. So let's look at the flu vaccine just as a comparison. You know, every season there, you know, we get the flu vaccine. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not. But you know, people who are making that vaccine can predict, you know, with fairly high confidence, how many people are going to get the flu every year. You know, it may vary a little bit. Some years are worse for flu, some are better, but there's this kind of steady state of infection. We don't know who's going to get infected, but we know by the end of the year, X number of thousands of people will get the flu. So, you know, you can test a vaccine against that background infection rate. COVID-19, the background is fluctuating. The virus is surging, it's ebbing and flowing, mm -hmm. you know, and of course it's actively being suppressed. Public health measures are being, are in place to avoid getting the virus and spreading it around. So imagine you're trying to test a vaccine in an environment where people are trying to keep the virus at bay. 
Um, and it's and also because of asymptomatic cases and and uh, unreported cases, pre-symptomatic spread. It's not entirely clear how much virus is out there. Uh, very hard to measure in the population. So so that complicates things, and that might potentially. Uh, make it longer to really understand if a vaccine's working or not. But but whether it does or not, the, the bottom line is it makes it hard to know for sure how long a trial will need to be. So I was looking, for example, at the uh, Moderna vaccine, again, just to use that as an example. You know, they've just uh, kind of registered their phase three clinical trial, uh, you know, and they're, they're saying that it's going to run until, you know, March of uh, 2022. So, so this is like uh, almost two years. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be data before then. And probably there could be early data as early as this fall. And I think already by then we'll start to have indications. So that may accelerate the process if things are looking good. And also, you know, if there is a second wave, if the virus is surging, uh, you know, in the fall, you know, more people are getting sick. Of course, all of that is bad news, but the silver lining will be it will probably accelerate um, the time in which it takes to uh, to get enough data to know if the vaccine's working. So there's no um, recorded finish line for this. Then is is what you're saying? We kind of need to wait until we have enough data, or until the situation gets bad enough, or there's like a confluence of factors that will determine when uh, someone says, "Okay, we can go ahead." And who says that? So this is uncharted territory in a way. It's something that the whole world is going to want at the same time. There'll be different manufacturers, many of them multinationals but perhaps with different national pressures on them, you know, from their home bases, wherever they are, U.S. or, or China or wherever. Uh, and, uh, and there may be different uh, vaccines uh, rising in prominence based on how they seem to do with different populations. So in a way, it's almost too early. I don't want to we- weasel out of the question, but it's almost too early to predict how it's all going to shake down. Everyone's going to want a vaccine, but I think we're already seeing some of the early indications of how complicated it can get if, uh, you know, if one country wants to have priority over others. And that's another reason why Canada is still supporting vaccine development, even though, you know, it's moving uh, faster in other parts of the world. Right. And that's a concern. I mean, should I be, and I'm not, you know, I'm not intending to be uh, frivolous, but should I be rooting for the Oxford vaccine because we're a part of the Commonwealth? Is that like what it's going to come down to? I think root for every possible vaccine. Fair enough. Uh, and then and then hope that the politics will, will get sorted or that the logistics will get sorted. Because there's the politics, but there's also just the straight logistics. Like, how do you get enough doses? Yes. I mean, this was going to be my next question, actually, is just like assuming. So let's let's just assume that, um, I don't know, whatever, a, a few months that the data looks promising on a couple of these enough to move forward. Um, what swings into motion then? And, and what kind of logistical challenges are there? There are a lot of logistical challenges, again, because we've never quite had this situation before. Uh, I mean, one thing that's different already is that these companies that are or groups that are in the uh, uh, phase three stages, I mean, they're already making, in some cases, millions of doses of vaccine kind of on a bet that they will have something that works and then as a result, they can start moving it quickly, you know, that that uh, you don't have to, there, there won't be this lag time to get the production up and running. Uh, so everyone's placing their bets and already starting to uh, to make vaccines. But they're still talking about millions or tens of millions of doses for that kind of investment. And, you know, we're in a situation where potentially billions of people around the world need to be vaccinated. Uh, and the other question, of course, that's hanging over all of this and is totally unknown, is 
how long will the vaccine last? I mean, if the vaccine provokes immunity and, and you take the vaccine and you don't you don't get COVID-19, great, or you get a reduced uh, 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 severity of COVID-19. But what happens a year later if you need it again? So this may this is probably not going to be a once in a lifetime shot. Uh, and so that's that's the other big unknown. And, and that obviously factors into the logistics as well. But in a, in a way, the environment is so uncertain still uh, that until we start to see uh, vaccines nearing that finish line, it may not be clear how it's going to play out. And I guess the last part of the process, um, and obviously probably more uh, a difficulty for the United States, but certainly up here and probably in other places too, um, there's a ton of misinformation out there about uh, this vaccine being an excuse for Bill Gates to put a chip in you uh, or whatever. Um, right. How do we convince people to take this? And I guess assuming there are some people who just won't, what level of uh, vaccination do we need uh, to make it, you know, safe for us to live life normally again? It's interesting, this question. It's actually, I, I've talked to a lot of people about this, you know, how worried do we have to be about the anti-vax movement or about, you know, this kind of concerns people may have, especially if the vaccine uh, is uh, kind of new, and uh, you know the you know the virus itself is, has only been in the human population for six months. We don't know what it's going to be like over the next several years. At the same time, the people who are closest to the vaccinology side of this, I find they're less concerned about that than I expected. Not that there's no concern, but I, I in some ways the people who are most concerned about it are the journalists I talk to, uh, hmm. you know, colleagues of mine, or or people maybe or sociologists like people, people who, who spend time that. on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or but people who also kind of look at attitudes and population, you know, kind of measure attitudes and all of that. Right. But the, the a point was made to me when we talk about people who are uncomfortable getting vaccinated or against getting vaccinated. They're doing that in a background where almost everyone is vaccinated in, in a way that gives them like they, they haven't seen the bad impact of the diseases against which they're refusing the vaccine because mm -hmm. because there's so little, you know, because these diseases have been tamped down to the point that, you know, like when was the last time you knew someone who had the mumps or, you know, that sort of thing? We just don't see these diseases on a day to day basis uh, because that's what the vaccines have done. Here, we have a disease for which there is no vaccine. Both the health and economic consequences are obvious to everybody. And that could change the balance in terms of, you know, there may be some holdouts and there's probably going to be lots of misinformation. But at the same time, if people are considering, look, I need to take this vaccine so I can go back to work and not be afraid of, you know, of dying. So I, I, I have a feeling that, that there's going to be such a, you know, high priority to try to get the world back to normal. There will probably be fewer people trying to back away from getting a vaccine. And especially because lots of people will be clamoring for one. And there might be less tolerance as well. I'm, I'm not sure what the legal implications are, but if you're in an office and your coworkers are refusing to be vaccinated, or if you're managing an office. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask about mandatory vaccinations. Like that's a whole can of worms. It is. It's interesting. So I think we're all going to be learning about this as we go down the road. But however it plays out in a legal way, in a social way, there's not going to be a lot of tolerance for what, you know, well, how can we run this office if you're not going to be vaccinated? I mean, let's get real here. But we have seen people make 
huge changes and huge accommodations because they recognize the seriousness of the situation. And they do, in addition to looking after their health, they want to get back to work, get the economy going, get life back to normal. And I think that is going to be a huge incentive for the vaccines to be taken up. Do you think that on the flip side of the anti-vaccination coin, that this has also uh, changed the public understanding of science and medicine in general living through this? I think it's definitely changing the public perception of science in a good way. I, I think, you know, everyone is getting a lesson about how science works in, in a very specific way, which is that science is probably the most powerful tool we've ever had in the history of human civilization to, you know, improve the world and to protect us from, you know, natural threats whether it's climate threats or, you know, or pathogens in the environment and so on. But at the same time, science is essentially impotent without data. So, you know, in the early days of this pandemic, uh, you know, a lot of us didn't know anything. Uh, and then, and then of course, we would turn to the experts and say, so what about this? What about this? Should we do this? Should we do that? And perhaps a bit surprised to hear the experts say, I don't know if mask wearing matters. I don't know if you should be this far away or this far away or, you know, lots of little detail. I don't know if it's okay to touch surfaces or how long, because in the end, it's the data that shows this. So no amount of expertise can really can really say anything. I mean, expertise maybe gives comes with a little bit of experience. In the early months, people were leaning on what we knew from SARS, for example. But this virus is different from SARS in some ways. So it's really the data that allows the expertise to kind of be the engine of knowledge and to move forward. And until the data come in, there are some things that we just don't know. Uh, and there may be some things that we never know. You know, there are mysteries still about the origin of this virus and uh, how it jumped into the human population and so on. If there's no data, we may never know the answers to those. And then in other cases like the vaccines, well, someday, you know, Two or three years from now, we'll know exactly what's going on with the vaccines, because by then we know there'll be enough data. But right now, there's so many open questions. We just have to leave it at that. Last question, and you can dodge it if you want. Given all the experts that you're constantly talking to about this, um, if it's August 4th, 2021, and we're sitting here, have we been vaccinated, me and you? If I answer that question, it would be meaningless. I actually think there's no way to know. What my gut is telling me is, that, and this is a, an easy one, but I mean, a year from now, we'll know if some of these vaccines that are now in phase three trials, we'll know if some of them are are looking effective or not. Uh, so, so there will be knowledge a year from now that we don't have. And also there will be treatments uh, or other approaches to COVID-19 while we're waiting for a vaccine, which will have come along and will have been improved. And, you know, sort of the world is, as the world is waiting for the vaccine, we're, you know, the medical system and, you know, public health, everyone's learning to live with the virus. So that'll be better. Uh, so we'll have, we'll, we'll have a better idea of what we can do, what we can't do while we're waiting, and we'll have a better idea of which vaccines are working. Will you and I be vaccinated? Good question. Uh, optimism then, but patience as well. Thank you so much, Ivan. Thank you. Ivan Semenek of The Globe and Mail. That was the big story. If you would like more, including our past episode on the potential for a vaccine, you can find it at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can write to us. The address is the Big Story Podcast. That's all one word at rci.rogers.com. You can also tag us or chat with us or DM us on Twitter at the Big Story FPN. And of course, 
We are in all your podcast players, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify. You pick, you choose. Please subscribe for free, rate and review and tell your friends. I just asked you to do a lot, but if you made it this far, do me a favor. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.